Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. And today we're connecting the dots between why, for example, the United States has more than 1,000 military bases abroad, but no universal health care at home. Democrats and Republicans all salute the same flag, go support the same imperialist foreign policy, tell the working class in the United States, first and foremost, we're not workers, we're not poor, we're not oppressed, we're not exploited, we're all you know, Americans, and we've got to support the U.S. government. And hundreds are arrested here fighting for a future as they demand a world free of fossil fuels. This has been in the government's playbook for a long time when industry, capitalist extraction industry comes to them and says, we want this. Uh, They're more than willing to make the accommodations by, by displacing Native people. All that and more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. More than 500 people were arrested at the White House this week in mass acts of civil disobedience, demanding that the Biden administration stop approving fossil fuel projects and halt federal fossil fuel leasing and permitting on public lands. They want President Biden to declare a national climate emergency and launch a renewable energy revolution. While Biden did put the final nail in the coffin of the Keystone XL pipeline, many frontline indigenous activists want him to do the same for the Line 3 pipeline in northern Minnesota, which is now bringing tar sand sludge across rice beds of treaty lands and endangering the Mississippi River headwaters and Lake Superior. Tasha Martineau, a water protector of the Fond du Lac Nation, who is opposing expansion of the Enbridge Line 3 Tar Sands Pipeline, traveled from Minnesota to take part in this week's actions. She spoke to Ben Zinovich. We're here today in Washington, D.C. to bring the frontline fight straight to the door of President Biden to ask him to move away from fossil fuel addiction and move towards a greener, safer, more sustainable future for all generations to come. And why do you think that Joe Biden and the government in general have been so hesitant, like they're kind of dragging their feet? I think it's all about what's popular right now. And, you know, the addiction of fossil fuel is very prominent in our culture. But Biden-Harris, they ran their campaign on being climate champions, and we need them to live up to that. Yeah, the fact that they have, maybe there's like a money interest, I think like obviously the way that Enbridge finances and like the money takes priority over the planet. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, indigenous people, they can't eat money, they can't survive on, you know, this temporary income that people are going to get from these temporary jobs that we already see with Line 3, those jobs are gone now that the oil is running. And you have people who are terrified for a future for their children. And so we're here today demanding that he hears our voices. 55 indigenous leaders from various fossil fuel fights across the nation were also arrested here on Thursday during a sit-down occupation at the Bureau of Indian Affairs. 
The Indigenous Environmental Network reported that police at the Bureau used a taser on at least two protesters, hit others with batons, and destroyed the equipment of an Indigenous journalist. The People vs. Fossil Fuels Week of Action concludes today with a youth-led march to the U.S. Capitol where allocations by Congress to address the climate catastrophe have already been scaled back in Biden's Build Back Better proposed law. And that law is currently being held up by right-wing Democrats. Monday, October 11th, was also Indigenous Peoples Day, recognized for the first time by a president this year through a proclamation signed by President Biden, but long observed by dozens of cities, states, and social justice organizations. Chantel James attended a celebration here in D.C. A festive gathering to honor Native Americans in their long struggle for freedom and determination was held in Malcolm X Park on Indigenous Peoples Day. The event included musical contributions from the Malcolm X drummers and dancers, as well as the Black Worker Center Chorus. Representatives spoke from the American Indian Society, the DC Coalition to Save Historic Thoroughfares, the American Indian Movement, and Woodland Territory to share on ongoing indigenous histories of resistance. We spoke with attendee Camilla Bryce Laporte of the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance on the need to teach coming generations of historical alliances between Black and Indigenous people. We're doing a project called Black in the Land of the Piscataway. So it's documenting the contributions that Black, Indigenous, and Black and Indigenous people have made throughout the Chesapeake. So, So we're looking at communities that they have been a part of you know, activities, sacred sites. So we want to make sure that it's part of a curriculum for young up-and-coming art administrators that they don't look at a land and assume that you're looking at a blank slate to know that people go under it or read something. The language revitalization runner Walkers also spoke on the importance of preservation of indigenous languages at the event. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. In Black Lives Matter news, George Floyd's family and friends joined in a celebration of what would have been his 48th birthday in Minneapolis on Thursday, October 14th. Floyd's brother, Phil told CNN Thursday night that the Floyd family and other families with loved ones killed by police are greatly disappointed that Congress failed to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act or any meaningful police reform legislation, and that police in the United States continue to kill far more people than in other rich countries. And those killed in the U.S. are disproportionately black and brown. The news outlet ProPublica has actually broken three recent important stories on policing. The ACLU of Louisiana is calling on federal prosecutors to launch an investigation into the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office, following a report by ProPublica that revealed stark racial disparities in shootings by deputies and systemic transparency problems in the suburb of New Orleans. The investigation highlights the story of Sojourner Gibbs, who went into a diabetic shock in her car last summer. 
County sheriffs first arrived on the scene, dragged her from the car, slammed her face down into dirt, and handcuffed her behind her back with zip ties. She is suing the department. ProPublica also broke the story about how deputies in California's Antelope Valley are disproportionately citing black teens, often for minor infractions like getting in fights or smoking. And the final story, which has gone viral, is about how a juvenile judge in Tennessee, Judge Donna Scott Davenport in Rutherford County, is locking up young black children for crimes that don't even exist, such as for witnessing a crime. You can check out these stories at ProPublica.org. In the D.C. area, a Maryland grand jury has declined to charge police officers who fatally shot aspiring musician Kwamina Okran in Gaithersburg in January. The report that Montgomery County prosecutors released said officers in statements reported that Okran fired a gun in their direction, so all of the officers fired back, hitting him multiple times. Technicians found 23 shell casings matching the officers' weapons. According to the report, no casings were found matching Okran's 9mm semi-automatic handgun. The four police officers, Willie Delgado, Larby DeCuni, James Doyle, and Kyle Kuhn, were all plainclothes officers who did not wear body cams. They remain on paid administrative leave while an internal investigation is conducted. Witnesses said that Okran was chased and shot in the back. And according to the prosecutor's report, of the nine shots that hit Okran, two were in his back and none were shot at close range. And finally, in culture and media, the SNCC 60th anniversary celebration is ongoing until Saturday, October 16th. Information about all workshops, the film festival, book talks, and more is at SNCC60thAnniversary.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Over 1,000 military bases in foreign lands, armed personnel in 130 countries, a military budget larger than the next 10 governments combined. The U.S. rulers maintain an empire and one that is constantly at war, so much so that the White House and Pentagon now declare endless war to be the country's standing military doctrine. What is the cause of this massive empire and these constant wars? How can they be stopped? So reads the preview for the new edition of Imperialism in the 21st Century, a book that revisits and updates the analysis of Russian revolutionary Lenin, who showed how the monopoly stage of capitalism produced imperialist wars and only social revolution could bring them to an end. The book, which includes a reprinting of Lenin's classic work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, also includes essays by today's activists, thinkers, and scholars, including my guest for this segment, a friend of the show, Brian Becker, national organizer for the Answer Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. 
Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thank you so much, Esther. Well, Brian, the book covers a lot of weighty and relevant issues with one chapter titled, for example, Inter-Imperialist War to Global Class War. So what does the book tell us about the important ways that imperialism or global capitalism, I'll refer to it that way, has evolved in the last century? Well, first of all, Lenin's book, which was written in 1916, was an important polemic within the global socialist movement over whether or not socialists should support their government as they fought in World War I. And most of the socialist parties actually did support their governments under the, the pressure of the war hysteria when a war starts and the nationalist fervor. Most of the parties that said that they would never support their own government in a war against other workers in other countries, they ended up capitulating. But Lenin and a few others, the Serbian Socialist Party, Eugene Debs here in the United States, they took a principled position and said, socialists have to oppose the imperialist war come hell or high water. But Lenin tried to examine why the war was happening. There had never been a war quite like World War I, where all the major powers of the world went to war against each other simultaneously. And within four years, 18 million people died. So Lenin's book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, analyzes the current war and says it's an outgrowth of a new stage of capitalism, or what he calls the highest stage of capitalism, which he describes as monopoly capitalism. And there are certain characteristic features of this new stage of capitalism. One is the domination of the banks over industrial capital, the concentration of capital into monopoly, and then the full-scale 100% colonization of all of the entire world, such that a few handful of capitalist countries, mainly in Europe, but also in Japan, uh, completely colonized Africa and Latin America in the Middle East and Asia. And the war was really about a redivision of those colonies among the competing capitalist countries. So there was this inter-imperialist war. And what we tried to do by publishing this book a uh, hundred years after Lenin's amazing volume, which has stood the test of time, but of course needs to be updated because the world has changed, is to acknowledge that the core essence of Lenin's argument is still correct. Capitalism is basically dominated by banks. It's the concentration of capital. It's monopoly capital. You can see that in every area of industry and banking. Uh, but what's different is that the world became decolonized after World War II. That's one of the principal differences. The colonies rose up after World War II. The national liberation movements succeeded at becoming free countries, independent countries, sovereign countries. And as a consequence, the nature of the exploitation of those countries changed rather than being straight out a colonial domination, we entered a new phase, which we describe in this book, and which Nkrumah described so eloquently back in the 1960s, as a new era of neocolonialism, whereby the imperialists still dominated emerging or formally colonized world, but not as formal colonies, but through the mechanisms of economic domination, or military bases, or other methods of imperial domination. Sanctions in particular right now being a principal one. 
So what we argued in the book is that Lenin's core thesis is still accurate. The genesis of war, especially U.S. war, is part of the system. When I was growing up and I was a kid during the Vietnam War, we thought, what a terrible mistake the Vietnam War was. But then the U.S. went on and invaded Panama. It invaded Iraq twice. It invaded Afghanistan. It went to war against Libya. It tried to overthrow the government in Syria. When you look at war after war after war, we came to the empirical conclusion, the same conclusion that Lenin came to through analysis, that the war wasn't really a mistake in foreign policy, but the byproduct of the system of modern day capitalism, or what he called monopoly capitalism and imperialism. So in that sense, while the world has changed a great deal, while the colonies, for the most part, are formally independent, the same mechanism of imperialist domination continues, although it takes other forms. Well, I guess one of those other forms is what we've come to call hybrid war. And I guess you mentioned one of the aspects of hybrid war, which are these sanctions. But There are other measures that imperialist countries take now, for example, lawfare, where they actually try to use the courts or the judicial mechanisms to bring charges against leaders of other countries. And then the one that I guess we're most familiar with is the information war. And that means the whole corporate media apparatus that is coming out of the United States and Europe having such a dominant role in the world in terms of what people know, what information they know, what what they believe is true, what stories they hear. And very often it's just total propaganda against the countries that the U.S. is targeting or other European countries are targeting. You know, I work with you on the Socialist Program, which is another podcast. And one of the reasons why we do the podcast is to bring stories that people don't hear. This is why I also do on the ground. But can you just talk about, from your perspective, as an activist and organizer, but also a journalist, the role that the U.S., uh, this corporate media plays in the new hybrid war? Yes, it's extremely important. You know, in the old era of colonialism, the colonizing power didn't really have to use the mass media very much in order to either demonize the colonized people, to invade them, to occupy them, to steal from them. The old style colonialism would basically say, look, we are the civilized part of the world and we are bringing the Bible and the cross to Latin America or to Africa or to Korea. And we're going to civilize these people who are a lesser people. That was about it for imperialist propaganda. Basically, they didn't really need to convince anybody of anything because it was, in essence, might makes right. So when the U.S. invaded Haiti in the early part of the 20th century, the Marines went into Port-au-Prince, marched to the bank, emptied the bank of all of the national assets, and marched it back to a New York City bank, and they basically just looted Haiti's entire national treasury. And Woodrow Wilson did it because he could do it. He didn't have to make a big claim about why he was doing it. But in the modern era, as democracy has expanded, as sensibilities has changed, as colonialism became something that was you know, considered to be bad, the colonizing powers, the imperialist powers, 
had to assign their interventions against other people in other countries with a noble sounding cause. So now it's for human rights or for democracy or in Libya to protect civilians or in Iraq to stop weapons of mass destruction or in China, it's to defend a national minority people, the Uyghurs in the Western part of China. In the case of Venezuela, it's to end the tyranny of the Maduro government. In the case of Cuba, it's to bring democracy and freedom. But in each and every instance, while they use all of this propaganda to basically try to trick people inside the imperialist countries, and some of the people inside the targeted countries too, what they're really doing is using the same methods of military occupation and economic warfare to destroy the targeted country. Some of the weapons have changed. Now the U.S. can drone people, so planes flying at high altitudes can bomb and assassinate whoever the U.S. decides to. The economic sanctions that are imposed on Venezuela, making it impossible for Venezuelans to get food and medicine, or the Cubans the same, or Iranians, uh, these are basically new mechanisms uh, or in taking the case of Afghanistan, the U.S. lost the war in Afghanistan. So what did it do? It seized all of Afghan government assets because those assets are not in Afghan banks. They're in the banks in New York or in London. In the case of Venezuela, the U.S. seized the embassy, a $20 million, $28 million building protected by the Vienna Convention that says diplomatic compounds are inviolable. Well, the U.S. just went in and said, we don't recognize Maduro anymore. We recognize Juan Guaido, somebody who most Venezuelans at that time had never heard of, who never ran for president. They said, he's the new president, and we're giving him the embassy. And they basically seized the embassy. In London, they seized a billion dollars of Venezuelan gold and said, oh, it no longer belongs to you. It belongs to Juan Guaido. So, you know, this hybrid warfare, media propaganda, demonization, full-scale demonization coupled with economic warfare, and then, of course, brute force, military attacks, bombings, drone strikes. So it's this kind of full-spectrum war by imperialism. But again, going back to Lenin's thesis that we uphold in this book, Imperialism in the 21st Century, these are not mistaken foreign policies. They're not a policy of the Republicans or the Democrats. These are the strategies of a system, modern-day capitalism. So If you want to get rid of war and if you want to have mutual respect and equality between nations, we can't simply vote in new politicians. We have to get a new system. We need a new system. We need a socialist system, a system that's not predicated on corporate profit making and corporate domination or the domination of Wall Street banks. So hybrid war is something new. It's something complicated. We have to analyze it. We do analyze it. But again, in its essence, it's the same system. Right. So when you had that impressive list that you ran down, I also always always want to remind people of Syria, because even though the U.S. was defeated in its attempt to overthrow Bashar al-Assad in that country, we're still there. We're still occupying, I think, a quarter to a third of the country, the most fertile part of the country where the country grows its wheat. We're not allowing the Syrian people to grow their own food. We're occupying the areas where they have their oil and not allowing them to reap the benefit of the oil, their own resources. And some reports say that we're actually stealing the oil and robbing them more of their resource. 
But finally, I wanted to ask you about how imperialism impacts people at home, because so many people think of imperialism as something that happens over there. Those people are being exploited. Those people's resources are being taken. And, and actually, I think that parathenically, that's one difference between, I think, you know, socialists and people who are often described as social democrats because they seem to be okay with with that happening over there as long as those resources can be used to have better benefits for people at home. For example, you know, Medicare for all or the types of things that people enjoy in Western Europe, largely because of this boost of this colonization and the wealth extracted from Africa and South America and Asia for so many decades, you know, centuries, you could say. But just talk about how imperialism comes home. Right. It's so important. You know, Martin Luther King said it one way. He said in 1967, when he came out against the war in Vietnam, he said, the bombs dropped in Southeast Asia are bursting in the inner cities of the United States, meaning you can't spend hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars for war and destruction against poor people abroad and then at the same time think you're going to have an effective system to alleviate or end poverty at home. That's one part of the equation. Another part of the equation is that to the extent that the U.S. can end up dominating other countries and create governments that are pliable, that are puppet governments, then that's where U.S. corporations go and set up shop because they can make super profits Uh, from exploiting the workers in those countries because they're emerging developing countries and wages are lower. When you look at the the hollowed out parts of the industrial Midwest or West Virginia, all of those factories that have been closed, I mean, millions and millions of jobs that were lost, they were lost because the imperialist system decided it was better for the imperialist, meaning the capitalist, to make super profits by paying workers a lower wage somewhere else than paying workers a living wage at home. And so, you know, weirdly, and and we have to fight against this, the same capitalist government tells us to hate those other countries that accepted American corporations as if they stole American corporations and stole American jobs and forced them to relocate to their countries. But these were willful decisions by American capitalists with the support of their government through the so-called free trade system, which isn't about free trade at all. So workers in the United States lose their jobs. And then there's another element, which is that uh, to the extent that people are convinced by the government that we're all Americans and we're all one nation, indivisible, and we have to stand together and support U.S. foreign policy no matter what, that we have to you know, not show any disrespect to American foreign policy. And if we do so, we'll dishonor our soldiers and dishonor veterans, et cetera, et cetera. All of that, to the extent that it binds the U.S. working class to the U.S. government and to the U.S. capitalists, that means the the ruling class in the United States is less afraid of the working class struggle here. If If we're thinking, oh, we're all in this together, we, the U.S. working class and the capitalists who exploit us, the cor- same corporate capitalists, you know, who cut wages or, you know, deny us basic healthcare benefits, but we're all Americans and we've got to all support the U.S. foreign policy, which is a, an imperialist policy and an imperialist strategy, then it weakens the class struggle in the United States. I mean, 
Why is it that U.S. workers, in spite of the fact that this is the richest country in the world, uh, don't have adequate health care, don't have adequate and affordable child care, uh, don't have free community college right now? It's because the level of class struggle in the United States has been at a too low of a level. And part of the reason there's been a low level of class struggle is that Democrats and Republicans all salute the same flag, go support the same imperialist foreign policy, tell the working class in the United States, first and foremost, we're not workers, we're not poor, we're not oppressed, we're not exploited, we're all you know, Americans, and we've got to support the U.S. government. Well, this government supports the capitalists. This government supports the Wall Street banks. This government supports the military-industrial complex. So the only way we can get what we need, the only way the working class can get what it needs is to fight against the capitalists. And it means not only fighting uh, for higher wages and for better jobs and affordable housing and health care and child care. It means also fighting against the wars that the imperialists, the American imperialists are promoting. And we have to say, look, the people in Iran, the people in Cuba, the people in Venezuela, they're not our enemy. U.S. workers and poor people don't benefit anything from, you know, destroying those countries and dominating those countries. We should see those people as our sisters and our brothers. In other words, we have something in common with them, solidarity against a common enemy, which happens to be Wall Street and the military industrial complex. That's so important what you're what you're saying, Brian. And I wanted to add one point on that. Uh, When I spoke to Dr. Margaret Flowers for another piece on imperialism for another show, COVID Race and Democracy here on Pacifica. She talked about how our environment here in the United States has been so ravaged and destroyed by these same multinational corporations. And very often the oil, the gas that they want to frack and, you know, destroy our water and our air and the the land uh, soil quality, it's all being exported. (laughs) So, Americans aren't even getting the benefit of these various pipelines and other types of projects, fracking projects that they have dotted all across this country and destroyed so much of what was just pristine wilderness or uh, certainly land that was safe to live on and water that was safe to drink at one time. So I have to wrap up. But I want to thank you, Brian Becker, one of the contributors and editors of a new edition of this book, Imperialism in the 21st Century. I highly recommend it because I realized that the way corporate media rolls out stories, it can all sound like chaos. And we want to kind of maybe just throw up our hands and be discouraged. But if you can think of all these things in a systemic way, all these issues are connected. When we talk about national, international issues, when we talk about lack of health care here or sanctions against another country there, that these issues are all connected. I want to thank you, uh, Brian, for joining me today and breaking down so much really important information for people today. Thank you so much, Esther. My name is Joseph, coming from uh, Massachusetts. When you look at a lot of the things that Enbridge and some of the other uh, oil companies 
uh, I know like in New England, uh, they're supporting some uh, legal actions against the tribes up there to take away land. So when they put the pipelines through, they don't have those issues. Uh, I know they're also funding things like the uh, trying to dismantle the uh, Indian Welfare Act. Oh, so there's okay. all there's these things that they are doing not just with the pipelines, but they're doing they're laying this ground to erase indigenous rights and indigenous uh, sovereignty. So when they do want to put these pipelines down, we, they don't have this voice against them. So yeah, uh, unfortunately, yeah, I can't say that I would say, oh, what we need to do is well, sit no, at the table yeah, and course. say, oh, hey, <laughs> you know, maybe if you only take a little or, yeah. or do this. Uh, so it, well, it's and- gotten to that point, uh, especially by their own actions. Uh, have kind of made it almost an all-or-nothing uh, situation. Yeah. In the past, the the role of settler colonialism was far more individualized. Like, they gave, like, sort of, like, the Homestead Act and all that. Now it's all these, like, large corporations, it seems. Like, they're the ones that are kind of leading the charge and disenfranchising and, like, uh, displacing and, like, leading to the kind of ethnic genocide mm-hmm. of indigenous people. Uh, I mean, this has been the playbook for, I mean, if you look back, uh, the railroads did the same thing. They would, uh, they, if they wanted to put a track through someplace, uh, when you look at the, the Lakota reservations, it used to be one big one. Mm-hmm. Then the railroad wanted to go through, so they broke that up yeah. into these weird, when you look at the map, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so this has been in, in the government's playbook for a long time when industry, uh, you know, capitalist extraction industry comes to them and says we want this uh they're more than willing to make the accommodations by by displacing native people my name is padma divine and i come from the unceded territory of the eastern band of the cherokee also known as Bat Cave, North Carolina. And I'm here with, uh, to amplify what we did this last uh, June, where we walked for um, the 2021 grandpa- uh, grandparents walking for our grandchildren and um, Mother Earth. So what we did is we walked from Biden's birthplace to Wilmington. We took our rocking chairs. Well, first of all, we stopped and got stories from all the uh, frontline communities as we were walking and riding along that route. We brought them to Chase Bank. Chase Bank's the largest funder of fossil fuels. Um, and, uh, and we sat there and rocked in front of their door and they said, you can stay here all day if you want. <laughs> No thanks. So we decided to make more, more, more of an impression, and we went down into the street, blocked the street, and got arrested. Rocking our chairs. We're rocking for a fossil-free future for ourselves, and as we heard today, for the next seven generations, with the support of all, and for the support of our Mother Earth. Ambridge does have the ability to move forward with more sustainable energy. They do 
have green energy within the Enbridge Corporation, and their workers can make the same amount of money by building hemp farms and building solar panels as they do laying pipe. You know, it's not about the availability of these jobs, it's about, you know, people's comfortability and what they know. Hello everyone, it's an honor to be here, and uh, my name is Ethan Buckner with Earthworks, and just here to express solidarity from all of those from the front lines who have traveled and made sacrifices to be here and are fighting the fossil fuel industry every single day. And we know the Biden administration wants to stand on the global stage and say, we are climate leaders. They want to have their cake and eat it too. But that cannot be possible so long as the Biden administration is allowing for the expansion of fossil fuel projects, for line three to destroy our indigenous lands and uh, to allow the Gulf Coast to be a, a continuous sacrifice zone for the oil and gas and petrochemical industry. So we're here in solidarity to say no false solutions, no fossil fuel projects, declare a climate emergency, uh, and end the era of fossil fuels. Those were voices from among the hundreds of people who participated in the People versus Fossil Fuels mass action this week in front of the White House, demanding that the Biden administration stop approving fossil fuel projects, halt federal fossil fuel leasing and permitting on public lands, and declare a national climate emergency. More than 500 people were arrested throughout the week, and of course, we're going to continue to follow that story of activism here in DC around the climate catastrophe. I wanna thank Lydia Curtis and Ben Zinovich for their reporting down at the White House. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, as we have covered U.S. foreign policy on this show, listeners have become familiar with the term imperialism, which is the highest stage of capitalism. And whether we have reported on U.S. economic strangulation of Venezuela or Cuba or the murderous attacks on Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, or Yemen, we have documented how these U.S. wars or hybrid wars are waged on behalf of U.S. capitalism as it attempts to continue its monopoly as the world's single economic hegemon. Based on today's headlines, this U.S. drive to war on behalf of the U.S. ruling class and monopoly corporations is killing scores of people all around the world, not to mention destroying the environment and putting the U.S. and the world on the dangerous path to World War III. And that's not hyperbole. So here to help us understand the latest is our geopolitical analyst, the prolific writer and activist, Professor Gerald Horn, whose most recent book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, 
Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, so glad you could join me today. Well, Gerald, as we've been discussing for some time now, the economic powerhouse of China is the primary target of U.S. imperialism now. And the U.S. is ever ratcheting up these provocations by all means of hybrid warfare, but also encircling China with military bases, uh, dispatching warships close to China waters, and continuing to sell more arms to Taiwan, which is legally part of China, but is being encouraged by the U.S., it seems, to seek independence. And then I noticed this week that after a recent confirmed report that there is U.S. military in Taiwan conducting training, China reiterated, uh, I think last Friday, a week ago, that their call for the U.S. to cut off military ties with Taiwan. And then all I could hear on corporate TV media in response to China's very measured position is that China is, quote unquote, threatening U.S. troops in Taiwan, just seeming to egg on conflict. So I just want to start with asking you where we are right now with this dangerous game in, in which the media is once again, you know, playing such a large part in, in ratcheting up war. Well, there was some striking news from the China front. Point number one is that the chief software engineer of the Pentagon resigned, and he resigned with a blast saying that China's domination in the 21st century is, and this is a virtual quote, a done deal, unquote, and he didn't want to have anything else to do with the Pentagon, and he was worried about the fate of his children and grandchildren. You already mentioned the equally disturbing report about U.S. military forces on the island of Taiwan at the same time that Chinese jets are buzzing Taiwan airspace. The mainstream media tells us this is an attempt by Beijing to wear down the Taiwanese forces who have to respond. And of course, since Taiwan only has a population of about 23 million and China's population is about 1.4 billion, one can easily figure out what the odds are of which force will be worn down first. Then with regard to the China-India front, there is some disturbing news. As you know, India has been recruited into this encirclement plan of China, but China and India have conflicts of their own with regard to their border and talks broke down, I'm afraid to say. On the other hand, there was a striking interview with the French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, just the other day, where he took issue with this new Cold War, Cold War II, as it's being called. And he suggested that France and indeed the European Union want engagement with China, not confrontation, which is the term he used to describe U.S. policy. And another striking piece came out of the conservative, the national interest by the equally conservative writer, David Pine, where he suggested that the United States should basically cut Taiwan loose, just like the United States should back off any commitments it may have to Ukraine and Georgia, the former Soviet Republic, because all they tend to do is drive China and Russia together to the detriment of U.S. national security. Now, this might be a one-off, but I think listeners should weigh that article very carefully. But I think that two of the 
equally important points that came out this week is one, that the Economist, the conservative British weekly, which since its founding in 1843 has called for what it refers to as free trade, that is to say, the attempt by first the British Empire and now the U.S. Empire to send its goods all around the world without any resistance from various countries. But now with the rise of China, the Economist even is rethinking the idea of free trade, which, by the way, goes back at least to 1688 when the merchant class in London demanded free trade in Africans because at that point, the Royal African Company under the monarch's thumb basically had domination of the African slave trade. But I think that a point finally that hits close to home is this problem of inflation in the U.S. economy and the problem of finding cars and ordinary supplies from cat food to auto parts. A lot of this has to do with the U.S. Cold War policy towards China because the two economies, that of China and the United States, are interlinked. They were intentionally and consciously interlinked decades ago. And now the United States is trying to decouple these two economies. And inevitably, it's going to lead to the kinds of supply chain snarls that you see, the kind of inflation that you see, because it's difficult to gum up the works in China without gumming up the works in the United States of America. One thing that's happened is that the Biden administration has continued much of the Trump policy of belligerence toward China, and his Democratic Party members are happy to kind of jump on the bandwagon. I know you noticed the quote or the statements by Representative Elaine Loria of Virginia wanting to allow President Biden to attack China in the event of a so-called attack on Taiwan by China. And she is calling for a debate over a Republican-sponsored Taiwan Invasion Prevention Act. And this proposed bill would no longer require the president to consult with Congress first before responding to a so-called clear threat against Taiwan, as established in this Taiwan Relations Act. So with this type of rhetoric from members of Congress, not to mention the fact that they passed recently a huge spending bill designed to counter China, which was really just a big giveaway to corporations, what voices on this front are speaking out against this ratcheting up of tensions with China? Well, of course, there are voices on the left, but it's difficult for them to find airtime. I, however, have to point you to something we may have talked about before, which is the fact that George Soros, the billionaire currency trader who was a major funder of liberal causes, has been sounding an alarm about China in the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, of all things. And I think we've also talked about the Bob Woodward book, Pearl, about the last days of the Trump regime where Mr. Trump, in order to save his presidency in January 2021, was actually contemplating an attack upon China in order to declare a national emergency. So this is a very serious, ultra-serious matter, and we cannot fall asleep on it. So one last thing on, on Taiwan. What is your reaction to some of the statements this week? Because uh, I'm just especially interested in the role of the leadership in Taiwan and all of this. So on October 9th, President Xi of China 
call for Taiwan to be peacefully reunited with mainland China. And he said, quote, national reunification by peaceful means best serves the interests of the Chinese nation as a whole, which includes our compatriots in Taiwan. We will maintain our basic policies of peaceful reunification and one country, two systems uphold the one China principle and the 1992 consensus. And we will work to promote the peaceful development of cross-strait relations, end quote. But on Sunday, President Ingwen Shei of Taiwan uh, said that Taiwan would not bow to pressure from China. And she said, quote, we will not act rashly, but there should be absolutely no illusions that the Taiwanese people will bow to pressure. We will continue to bolster our national defense and demonstrate our determination to defend ourselves in order to ensure that nobody can force Taiwan to take the path China has laid out for us, end quote. What's your reaction to this statement by Taiwan's leadership? Well, it's even more ominous than it sounds. I mean, recall that between the 1890s and the end of World War II, Taiwan was fundamentally ruled by militarist Japan. There's still a strong Tokyo influence in Taipei. I think the present leadership in Taiwan reflects that. As you know, relations between Japan and China are not ideal, to put it mildly, despite the multi-billion dollar trade that they conduct annually. Indeed, Japan is part of the so-called Quad, including United States, India, and Australia. Japan is also beefing up its military budget, and Taiwan is part of their anti-China strategy. So this is what gives the leadership in Taiwan the gumption to speak out in the way you've just quoted. And, and I know you want to make a final word for our segment. We always talk on the third show of every month. We, we have a segment called The F Word on Fascism. So I know you have a, a comment on that, Gerald. Well, a few news items. One, it's come out that AT&T, the major telecommunications giant, happens to be a major sponsor and funder of One American News, the unofficial Trump network that makes Fox News seem like Pacifica. Likewise, a lot of revelations have been emerging about the Silicon Valley billionaire, Peter Thiel, T-H-I-E-L, who was a major initial funder of Facebook, sits on the Facebook board, has been given discredit for Facebook's dealings and toxic postings and all the rest that's been much in the news of late. Interestingly enough, uh, Peter Thiel, just like his former comrade Elon Musk, has roots not only in apartheid South Africa, but also in Namibia, which had been occupied illegally by South Africa up until 1990 when it surged to independence. And in fact, his family was apparently involved in nuclear energy in Southern Africa. And we all know about the attempts of South Africa to build a nuclear weapon. I should also say that there are some conflicting trends that are emerging. I'm sure you heard about the Las Vegas Raiders football coach, John Gruden. Yes. It came out that uh, he had been sending these emails with just horrible racist, misogynist, homophobic messages. Uh, he decided to resign. Now, this is happening at the same time where there's, number one, 
this controversy about so-called cancel culture, which is basically a, a fraudulent notion. But here we see that effectively John Gruden was canceled, and it'll be interesting to see what will be the reaction from the Trump base to this. And I say this as well because there is another controversy that's erupted on the editorial page of the New York Times. Ezra Klein, a former writer for the Washington Post, has been giving quite a bit of attention to a Democratic strategist who has been sending out the message that the black agenda does not poll very well and that the Democratic Party would do well to jettison that agenda, speaking of issues like Black Lives Matter, defund the police, uh, so-called critical race theory, etc. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, to what extent that the Democratic Party leadership decides to take uh, him up on that. And we may get a reading with regard to the Virginia gubernatorial election where the Trumpster, Mr. Youngkin, the Republican, apparently, according to the press at least, is doing quite well and hammering quite vigorously the question of so-called critical race theory. Oh, absolutely. I was just down in Virginia Beach and I had to witness the barrage of that type of misinformation, disinformation. And what's important that I could see from that vantage point was the fact that Democrats need to, uh, when, when there are these posters or you know, social media posts or announcements that say, you want to um, say that the America was built on racism and you want to say that, you know, Democrats have to say, yes, it was. <laughs> that's all. That's all I want to say. You know, and, and that's not what's happening. They won't talk back to the mob. They won't stand up for the truth and the, the fact of not just black history, but American history. That's what we're really talking about. That's right. We'll definitely have to keep watch on that. But anyway, uh, I've been uh, speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. A special thanks to Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, Ben Zinovich, Brian Becker, and Gerald Horn for contributing to today's show. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter, or on patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. Our podcast is on the ground with Esther Averam on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included Jelly's Debiner by Robert Glasper, What Rough Beast by Burnt Sugar, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com 
forward slash on the ground show. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.